Yes, please. So with the idea of doing no harm to oneself mm -hmm. and to others, Yes. how, how does one then set um, appropriate boundaries to avoid having another harm, harm oneself, harm me, but doing so is going to harm that other, the other. Why would doing so harm the other? Why? Yeah. Because they may, um, they may not want to respect those boundaries. They may like things the way they are. But how does that harm them? Well, they may not get what they want. But that's not harming them. Okay. Yeah. No, there's a big difference between somebody not getting what they want and somebody being harmed. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's our responsibility. It's, it's, it's our responsibility to, to, to act in a way that we're not harming and to do absolutely everything in our power to see that other people are not harming us or in some situations harming others, depending on our relationship with who, yeah. And there's lots of times when people don't get what they want, yeah. But that is really um, very different, very different. And, you know, you can see that somebody who's really clear about clear boundaries has the range of spectrum of both being gentle and phenomenally... Um, diplomatic and sagacious and being ferocious. But the ferocity is not driven by anger. It's driven by the clarity and the compassion that you absolutely don't hurt people and you're willing to take a stand in order to see that that doesn't happen. Thank you. Yeah. And it's an, it's an amazing thing when you know something as conviction that you have to stand up to even when it means that you may lose everything and you're prepared to do that because you're you are called to speak or to stand up or to make a statement in 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 support of non-harm those are remarkable initiation and transformational points yes please um, can you please define like what it means to harm what does it mean to harm to hurt another person physically, to abuse another person emotionally, to use another person um, for convenience sake. So in terms of the kind of classical definition around the, around the five precepts, non-harming would include things like not hitting or taking life or slandering or belittling or shaming, or ridiculing. In terms of non-harm, in terms of the third precept, it has to do with um, not being engaged in relationships with somebody who's in a committed relationship, or somebody who's underage, or somebody who's not consenting. Or um, in terms of speech, it has to do with um, not being uh, using harsh speech, and uh, or deceptive speech or divisive speech. So one of the things that's so um, useful about having a framework is, is, is that it gives reflections on ways of training mindfulness. Now, Thich Han, with his five 
his mindfulness trainings, I think really is on to the right thing. We do something with precepts that I don't know is what the Buddha intended because we have a Judeo-Christian kind of overlay that takes precepts and solidifies them into commandments. And that's not the way they were offered. That's not the way they were intended. So a mindfulness training is really a training to sharpen our mindfulness. And so when a person takes the, the precepts, they are, they are saying that they are in a commitment to learn to train their mindfulness around these frameworks. It's not uh, a commandment, and it's not a, the same kind of thing that happens that we see in other faith-based traditions. Does that help? Does that give enough context? Yeah. In terms of what is right speech, there's a lot to be said about that. And you can see, you know, in a community or in a relationship or in a family or in a class or in a neighborhood, in a work situation, you know, things can go really sour very quickly by the way that people are speaking about each other. And you can also see that one of the telltale signs of a healthy community or a healthy family or healthy relationship is the sense of safety and trust that's there and the way that is safeguarded by how people speak to each other and about each other. It's a very important question. Thank you for asking it. Yes? I wonder if you uh, could talk a little bit more about the form versus formlessness paradigm. I've heard it said that Form is emptiness, emptiness is form. And I, I take it as meaning that form is really an artifact of the mind, of how we conceptualize, like we categorize things and break them down into different objects and sort of lump them together into groupings. And on the other hand, it seems to me how else could we conceptualize anything? When I think of formlessness or emptiness, it just seems like vast vanilla mush. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really have a grasp on how we could talk about anything in terms of emptiness and formlessness. Then what is there to talk about? So um, I'm just curious about this. Well, I mean, it's a really, it's a good point because there's a place where language breaks down and what is needed is direct experience rather than languaging around it. But like, okay, here we have this. Yeah, what is this? What is that? That's what we call a singing bowl. Okay, it's a singing bowl. <laughs> but if I turn it upside down and put a Buddha on it, then what is it? It could be a hat. <laughs> it could be a hat or a Buddha stand, or if, if we filled it up with water, it could be a drinking bowl or a vase. If I take it and I smash somebody on the head, it's a weapon. If I roll it, it's a bowling ball. Okay? So we have a way of relating to this form and a name based on our conditioning. And so here at Zen Temple, it's used as a singing ball. And it's used to begin or to end sittings or to announce when we're doing refuges and precepts. Or it's, it's used ceremoniously and as a way of demarcating certain things. But if we look at it from another perspective, it's not the only thing that it could be. Right? So it's not fixed as a form. Yeah? 
And the way we see it is depending on our habits and our associations. And if our habits and associations shift, then our relationship with this would also shift. Right? So if you saw me walk up to somebody and crack somebody over the skull with this, it very might be that the next time you saw this, you would shake because you would have an an image or an experience of horror that was connected to it. Okay? Now, it isn't in the bowl. It's in our memory and our association with the bowl. The bowl is not a violent thing. But I might use it that way. But it also might be that I can use it as a single signal or a signal of waking up. You know? So there isn't anything specific that's a feature of this bowl. It's the way we are habitually used to relating to it. Yeah? But our, our minds and our perception tends to fix things and locate them in time and space and name them, and then through naming them, feel that we know what it is. We hate not knowing. Like with an absolute vengeance that's just off the Richter scale. So we don't like to stay with this and say, I don't know. We like to know what it is. But when we know what it is, we limit our ability to relate to it in other ways. Okay, So the form takes shape and it doesn't flow very easily, at least not at this temperature, but if we made a nice big hot fire and we put it in the fire, it would flow quite nicely. Yeah. So at the moment, because of the temperature we're at, it takes a particular shape and it's not flowing. And then we have certain associations with it. But the associations are not fixed. Okay? When we begin to get a sense, for example, with our own body, how our body takes shape and we've got certain associations with it and sensations with it, but the sensations are changing, and then we also feel within the body the breath, and we feel the energy that moves in the body, and then we feel how the energy of the moves in the body is not actually located to the skin of our body, but we can have the experience that the energy moves beyond the skin of our body, okay? then we begin to get an energetic feeling for how within our body is something which is formless, okay? It's not abstract. It's not that we're thinking about how our body is is formless. We're experiencing how our body is formless. And then sometimes we can sit and it feels like, you know, we're huge. Or sometimes it can sit and we can feel like we're light. Or sometimes we can sit and we can feel like we weigh 10 tons. And yet, if we put ourselves on the scale, we probably wouldn't have changed our physical weight. And if we measured ourselves, we probably wouldn't have changed our size that much. But our direct energetic experience of ourselves shifts when the conditions change. So it's probably better not to try and think about formlessness as a conceptual thing, but try and ground it as how do you experience it in your own body and in your own world and in your own relationships? You know, How does it manifest as a daily thing where you think you're dealing with something and then all of a sudden it's something else? You know? I mean, I've had that happen with people. You're talking to somebody and you think you have two adults talking to each other. 
and then all of a sudden you've got two two-year-olds talking to each other. <laughs> what happened? All right? And then one two-year-old is trying to tell the other two-year-old what to do and it doesn't go down very well. <laughs> and then somebody twigs about what's happening and grows up and is able to navigate the two-year-old in themselves and the two-year-old in the other person, and then you've got a whole different situation happening. I mean, this is actually common. This happens a lot. You know, what happened? Well, psychologically, there's a rich territory of what happened, and we can go into all of that. But the reality is, is that you thought you had something, and then all of a sudden it shifted. And then, for me, the real cutting edge of practice is to be right with what's shifting. You know, so if I hang out with the idea I'm an adult, you know, then I've lost it. And it can take a long time to be current with the fact, well, actually, I'm two, you know. And what does a two-year-old need? And how does a two-year-old need to respond? And what is, what is appropriate in this context? So for me, a cutting edge of this practice is to be appropriate to what's arising in the present moment. Not my idea of what's arising in the present moment, but the actuality of what's arising in the present moment. What's happening right now? And how am I responding to it? Not my idea. I remember I was walking with somebody... And there were raindrops, and you could see, because the rain was falling on our clothes and it was making things wet, and they looked up and there were no clouds. And so the comment was, it cannot be raining, there's no clouds. (laughs) Okay? Well, there are many ways where it is raining, and there are no clouds, and we are having to navigate that in our daily life. And so the formlessness is not about an abstract idea, but about it's raining. What do I do now? How do I deal with it? Even though there's no conceptual framework that I have that makes sense out of this. Sometimes when you're doing energy work or stretching, when you connect your breath and your movement, you can feel the subtle energy of the body moving through you. And you can feel the body like like a hollow tube and that the predominant thing is the energy and then sometimes with that subtle energy it can become like just wide open space okay so within your own physical body you can experience these different layers levels yeah does that help Does anybody else have another way of thinking about this or relating to this topic in a way that's supportive? Yes. Science, for me, science has allowed me to experience formlessness in a way where I think about your body just being atoms. And we don't really think about atoms as being alive or being you, but each one of us is every one of our atoms. And inside those atoms were also our nuclei, or subnuclei. And like it goes down to the fundamental part of the universe, where we really just are the universe experiencing itself. So to get that formlessness, it's sort of just kind of like, whoa, I'm just a bunch of atoms. What's that like? Wow. That's my take on it. Lovely. <laughs> The only thing that I would add is, is that we're a bunch of atoms with a heart. Yeah. You know? Yeah, the atoms and your atoms. <laughs> we're both atoms. <laughs> it's nice for each other.
So the question or the comment was is, is that through form is where we often experience formlessness coming into contact in the, in the present moment. And I would say, you know, different people have different gateways. And I think one of the, one of the tremendous supports that traditions offer, <coughs> teachings offer, institutions offer, is they create the structure that then supports a person to be able to experience and know what is formless. And so our bodies can do that. And the, the structure of a retreat or the t- structure of teachings can do that. But it is, it is not limited to those things where we can experience it. And so in our contemporary world, we're seeing a lot of people who are having contact with what's formless and it's not held in the traditional structure that they got the contact from. It's just direct contact with life or space or nature or whatever. And so the challenge is, is without structure, how is it that one can ground and integrate that experience in a way that our life is continuing to move towards what is wholesome and kind and compassionate and integrative, where this understanding is coming through the various different layers of our body and our heart and our mind. And everybody has their own journey with that. Yeah. Well, I don't know how this has been for you this afternoon, but I have certainly enjoyed being here. And I just so deeply appreciate your radiance and your attention and your interest, your practice, your presence. And I hope our paths cross again in support of what is deeply awakening and kind, compassionate and harmless. And thank you so much for your warm welcome.